like to invite you, please, to take your copies of Scripture and turn to the book of Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11. We'll actually be reading from two passages in the book of Genesis. The first of those, Genesis chapter 11, and then we'll look over at Genesis chapter 28, which will be the primary text for our message this morning. I thought that in light of the topic I'll be teaching on this week at LMC that I would share with you a little sample of what we're going to consider, namely the importance of seeing Jesus Christ in the Old Testament Scriptures. And in this message this morning, what I want to do is I want to try to show you that Bethel, which we're going to read about in chapter 28 of Genesis, is God's ultimate answer to the human rebellion manifested at the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. Secondly, I want to show that Bethel teaches us that salvation is by grace alone. At Babel, Men try to ascend, to reach up to God. But at Bethel, God comes down to save man. That's really the difference between true religion and all false religions. In true religion, God is the one who saves. All false religions are men's attempts to save themselves. And then thirdly, I want to try to show you this morning that Bethel foreshadows the incarnation, the Word become flesh. Remember, Jesus said that Moses wrote about Him. He said of the Old Testament Scriptures, they speak about Me. I like to take trips to other places, like this trip to Zambia, meet new people, fellowship with God's saints, but I have to confess that it isn't long before I start missing my wife, and I start becoming a little bit homesick. And though I enjoy being here, I look forward to getting back to be with my wife. I think that's the way that many of us as Christians feel when we read our Old Testaments. We enjoy reading the stories about Adam and Eve, the patriarchs, King David. And yet, as we spend time in the Old Testament, we sometimes get homesick for the New Testament because we miss our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And you see, the problem is that as Christians, we often think that Jesus is found in the New Testament, but He's not to be found in the Old Testament. But I want to try to encourage you today that He is in the Old Testament. He's all throughout there. 
If my wife came walking down this aisle this morning, I'd be happy to stay indefinitely in Zambia because my wife Becky would be here. What if I told you that Jesus is throughout the pages of the Old Testament? If you knew that and could see that, I suspect you'd spend a lot more time in the Old Testament Scriptures. So with those thoughts in view, let's look together at Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9, and then Genesis chapter 28, verses 10 through 22. Verse 1 of chapter 11 reads, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as the people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people and they all have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth." Now, if you would, please turn to Genesis 28. Genesis 28, verse 10, where we have God's response, God's answer to the Tower of Babel. And let's begin reading in verse 10. We read that Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and he stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and he lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham your father and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and I will keep you wherever you go and I will bring you back to this place. 
For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and he said, Surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. And he was afraid. And he said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head, and he set it up for a pillar, and he poured oil on its top, and he called the name of the place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth unto you. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Let's just pause for a moment in prayer. Our God and our Father, we do pray to the one whose throne is in heaven and whose feet rest upon the earth as his footstool, that you would look to us who are of contrite and broken spirits and who tremble at your word. Open our eyes that we might see wonderful things from your law. Incline our hearts that we might desire to love and serve you. And order our steps that we may always walk in the ways of your commandments. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. From Genesis chapter 28, I want us to look at two things. First of all, at God's revelation to Jacob, which we see in verses 10 through 15. And then secondly, Jacob's response to God's revelation in verses 16 through 22. And so first of all then, let's together look at God's revelation to Jacob. And I want you to notice with me in verses 10 through 11 that God, to begin with, prepares Jacob for the revelation. Notice that verses 10 and 11 depict Jacob as on the run. It says he left Beersheba, he goes towards Haran, he comes to a certain place, he stays there that night because the sun had set, then he takes one of the stones of the place, he puts it under his head, He lays down in that place to sleep. Now, I want you to consider the fact that at this point in Jacob's experience, he is clueless with respect to what is about to happen. He doesn't arrive at this location as if he has pre-planned to go there. Jacob is, as it were, in exile. He's been sent away by his mother and father to go to Haran in order to flee from the wrath of his brother Esau. And he comes upon this place. The Hebrew term translated came denotes a random 
unexpected rendezvous. It's the kind of word you would use if you just happened to go to the grocery store and you bumped into an old high school friend. You didn't plan to see them there, but you just happened to see them there. And so initially, this event for Jacob, from his perspective, would have been accidental. And yet later on, as Jacob would look back upon this event, he would realize that this place was providential. Jacob did not make reservations, but God had before made reservations for Jacob to stay at this place. And I think that's how Moses wants us to read this passage. He wants us to see that God is working behind the scenes, setting the stage for this revelation that he's about to give to Jacob. And I think you and I, if we're believers, if we're Christians, we can recall that God did the same for us in our life. We were on the run from God. We weren't planning to seek Him. But God brought us to a place providentially where God would reveal Himself to us and open our eyes that we might see. And this ought to encourage us, by the way, to be praying for our family members, our friends, and our neighbors that God would do for them what He did for Jacob. That He would set the stage. That they would happen upon a place where God might reveal Himself to them. Maybe there's somebody here this morning. You didn't have plans to be here. But someone at the last minute invited you to be here. So you just happen to be here. My prayer for you is that you might meet God in this place. And so Jacob at this time though is clueless, even though God's working behind the scene. But notice secondly, as God's preparing Jacob for this revelation, that Jacob is in a very hard place. I remember reading one commentator who said that the stone on which Jacob rested his head was a type of Christ. And that Jacob placing his head upon the stone was a type of the believer putting his faith in Jesus. Now personally, I don't think that's a very good reading of the passage. I don't know about you, but I have trouble sleeping on a soft pillow. If I were to put my head upon a rock, I doubt I would ever get any sleep. So if this rock is meant to symbolize anything in Jacob's life, I think it meant to symbolize that Jacob is having a very difficult time. We might say that Jacob is between a rock and a hard place in more ways than one. In fact, later on in the book of Genesis, Jacob is going to reflect upon this incident in chapter 35. And there he speaks about God answering him in the day of his distress. So again, as you read this passage, don't think of Jacob as just whistling and some happy camper but rather think of Jacob as being a man who is afraid. 
A man who is probably wrestling with a guilty conscience because he has just deceived his father in order to rob his brother's blessing. So this is a difficult time for Jacob. He's probably feeling very vulnerable, probably very discouraged. But that's precisely where Jacob needs to be in order to receive God's revelation. And the same is true with you and I. Many people say that Christianity is a crutch for weak people. They're right in one sense. Christianity is a crutch for weak people. But where they're wrong is that they often think that they're not weak people. They don't need God. They have it all together. That's the way some of us used to think. I was brought up in a home where I heard about God and I heard about Jesus and I heard about the Bible. Those were interesting topics. But I didn't need God. I didn't need Jesus. I didn't need the Bible. And so I wasn't ready for God to reveal Himself to me. It wasn't until the time when God actually brought me to the place where I began to feel my need that I was then ready for God to open up His Word and to give me eyes that I might see Him revealed in the pages of Scripture. Well, so it is for Jacob. God is preparing the way. God is preparing Jacob's heart. And thus, that brings us to verses 12 through 15, where God gives Jacob the revelation. Notice with me in verses 12 through 13a, God reveals himself to Jacob in the form of a dream. And then the substance of that revelation is in verse 13b through 14. It's a covenant promise. Now, I want to look at the promise first, and then I want to go back and look at the dream. And hopefully you see why it's so important that we consider the dream itself. So first of all, let's just briefly consider the promise. The substance of this covenant promise in verse 13b through 15. Where the Lord says to Jacob, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west, to the east, to the north, and to the south. And in you and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised for you. Now notice with me three elements of this promise. Number one, God says, I will be your God. I was your grandfather's God. I was your father's God. Now I'm going to be your God. Secondly, God says, I will fulfill the Abrahamic blessing through you. It's important for us to realize that this is the same promise God gave to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, where he says to Abraham, go from your country, 
Go from your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you. Notice what he says here. And remember what the builders of the Tower of Babel had said. Let us make a name for ourselves. Well, here's God's response. God says to Abraham, I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will uh, curse those who dishonor you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's the covenant promise. Now, we have to be careful how we interpret this promise because it sounds on the surface very similar to what's called today the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. Where, you know, the idea is that if you believe in God, God's going to give you children, and God's going to give you houses, and God's going to give you lands, and He's going to fill up your bank account. But that's not the way we need to read this promise. We need to read this promise in light of the context of the book of Genesis and the Scriptures as a whole. Indeed, this promise goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. That promise that God gave as He cursed the serpent... And he promised to Adam and Eve the day was coming when he would put enmity between them and the serpent, between his seed and their seed, and that seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And in doing so, the serpent would strike his heel. And so the curse brought about by man's sin would be reversed by the offspring of the woman. And that's why the Apostle Paul can refer to this Abrahamic promise and he can say, God preached the gospel to Abraham. And now here in our passage, Genesis 28, God is preaching the gospel to Jacob. And then finally he says to Jacob, I will keep you wherever you go and I will bring you back. In other words, Jacob, you're going to be the agent of worldwide blessing and therefore I'm going to ensure your safety and security. So that's the substance of God's revelation. But now I want you to consider with me the mode. How does God reveal this promise to Jacob? And that brings us to verses 12 through 13a, what we might call technically a theophanic dream. A dream in which Jacob actually, in some sense, sees God. Verse 12 reads, And he, that is Jacob, dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on earth, the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it. Can you imagine having this kind of dream? I think scientists today would refer to this as a vivid dream. 
It's a dream in which your senses are overwhelmed and your heart rate begins to elevate. We might, though, call this an awe-inspiring dream. Moses underscores the awesome nature of this dream by repeating the interjection, Behold! Three times. He says, Behold! There was a ladder. Behold the angels of God and behold the Lord. It's as if Moses is saying to us, if you want to know the meaning of the dream, you need to understand the three main elements of the dream. So let's consider those each in turn. First of all, consider with me the structure. Now, most English versions translate the Hebrew term tsulam as ladder. Okay? How many of you have an English version that says ladder? Nobody? That's the ESV says ladder. That's the most common translation. Uh, there are, though, some other English versions who say stairway. How many of you have stairway? Okay? Just a few. All right, actually the Hebrew can mean either. Either ladder or a stairway. A ladder something you lean up against a wall if you're a carpenter or painter. A, a stairway is like what we have here where you go from one floor and you move up to another level. All right, the question though is what is this referring to in our text? Well, Bible scholars tell us that the best most likely reference here is to the ancient Mesopotamian ziggurat. A ziggurat is a pyramid, but it's a stepped pyramid with different levels. And there's a stairway that runs from the bottom all the way up to the top of the pyramid. And at the very top of the pyramid, there's a little room, a temple as it were and the idea was in the ancient world that the humans would ascend they would go up the stairs and there in that little temple their God would descend and they would have meetings and dealings with God in that temple now I think that's probably the best way to interpret this dream this structure that Jacob is seeing. And I say that for a couple of reasons. Number one, the vision itself uses language that's rem rem uh, reminiscent of the Tower of Babel. Notice in Genesis 11:4, the builder said, let us build a city and a tower, listen, with its top in the heavens. And then look at our text, verse 12, speaking of this, says ladder, but it's actually a stairway, its top reached to heaven. Secondly, in verse 17, Jacob interprets the dream as a divine visitation. He calls the place the house of God. That's what Bethel means. And then he goes on to refer to it as Shahar Ahashamayim, which means the gate of heaven. It turns out that the Akkadian term Babel, which the builders named their tower, means gate of God. So do you see the parallels between the two? 
In the third place, God promises Jacob through the vision exactly what the tower builders were seeking. They were looking for security and significance. Uh, In the ancient world, when you wanted to be safe, you would build a city with walls. And if you wanted to make a name for yourself, you would build a ziggurat with its top reaching into the heavens. And that's exactly what they sought after. But notice, this is what God promises Jacob. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and in you and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. How is that for significance? How is that for importance? And then he says, I am with you, I will keep you and bring you back to this place. That's security. All right? And so you can see the parallels between Babel and Bethel. And that supports the idea that this was probably a stairway on a big pyramid-like structure called a ziggurat. By the way, there's one more reason why I think this is a stairway and why it's not a ladder is because have you ever thought about how difficult it would be for angels of God to be going up and down on just a single ladder? They'd be stepping on each other's hands. It would be much easier if there's this wide stairway where they can kind of, you know, go around each other up and down. And so the structure Jacob sees is a stairway, much like the stairway the tower builders at Babel tried to create. But now consider, secondly, the angelic projection. There are angels going up and down. What does that mean? Well, in the Bible, angels do at least three things. First of all, they're members of the divine council where they administer the affairs of God's kingdom. Secondly, they're conveyors of divine revelation. And then thirdly, angels are ministers of redemption. They are sent to protect God's servants and to encourage them. I think the third function, maybe the second one as well, are probably the functions highlighted in this passage. Jacob was about to get a revelation. Moreover, Jacob needed that sense of protection. And so God sends his angels in this dream to assure Jacob that he's going to protect him. But then thirdly, And I think this is probably the most important element that we need to stress. It's the idea of divine condescension. Now, most English versions depict God as standing above or on top of this stairway. But that's not the best translation. The Hebrew pronoun, it, where it says God is standing on it, is masculine, it can also refer to Jacob himself. And the preposition translated on or above can also mean beside. And so the Christian Standard Bible translates the first part of verse 13, Yahweh was standing beside him. In other words, it's as if God came down and hand-delivered his promise to Jacob. Now let me give you several reasons for seeing it this way. The same preposition and the same pronoun is used later on in Genesis 35 where it says God appears to Jacob 
And then he reiterates the Abrahamic blessing. And then in verse 13, it says, God went up from beside him. All right? So you have the same place, Bethel, the same covenant promise. And in both cases, God comes down to reveal himself to Jacob. And by the way, later on in chapter 49, Jacob's going to look back on this event and say it was actually the angel of Yahweh who appeared to him. Secondly, the Hebrew verb translated set up talks about the stairway being set up. That word normally refers to building something from the ground up. However, in the Hebrew, there's a directional preposition, as it were, attached to the word earth. So what Jacob saw was a stairway that was being erected toward the earth. It's as if the stairway is coming down from heaven to where Jacob is lying. And then thirdly, consider what Jacob says when he awakes in verse 16. Surely the Lord is not up there. He's in this place. And I did not know it. That statement, together with the fear that Jacob feels, fits better with the idea that God actually comes down and stands right there beside Jacob. Some of you have heard the song, it's a children's song called Jacob's Ladder. And the first line of that song reads, we are climbing Jacob's Ladder. But dear friends, I hope you see that that's a bit misleading. Because according to Bethel, we don't climb ladders. In fact, Jacob didn't see a ladder and he's certainly not climbing the ladder. He's fast asleep. It is rather God condescending, God coming down to reveal Himself to Jacob. And by the way, uh, of all translations that I think get this passage right, it's the Jewish Tanakh, the Jewish Old Testament, translated by the Jewish Publication Society, which reads, Jacob had a dream, a stairway was set on the ground and its top reached to the sky and the angels of God were going up and down on it and the Lord was standing beside Jacob. So, I'm sorry for all of that detailed information, but why is all of that important, Dr. Gonzalez? Well, dear friends, I hope you can see the contours of the gospel in this revelation to Jacob. God condescending. We have a stairway in this passage that was God's plan. It wasn't man's idea like we had at the Tower of Babel. The stairway at Bethel is built by God, not by human hands. In a very real sense, Jacob was passive. God was the one who took the initiative. And the stairway at Bethel was not put in place so that Jacob could scale heaven. It was, in a sense, let down from heaven so that God could condescend in order to reveal Himself to mankind in a saving way. And that, dear friends, is precisely what God did in the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
We might even say Jacob met Jesus at Bethel. Now you might be thinking, well, Dr. Bob, you're kind of spiritualizing a little bit here. But let me have you come with me to John chapter 1 so that you'll see that this is not the case. The Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 43 through 51. John chapter 1, verse 43, we read that on the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip, and he said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael, and he said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him, and he said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. By the way, that's probably an allusion to Jacob. Jacob was known for being a man of deceit, before his conversion. But after he was converted, he became Israel, a new man, a man in whom there was no longer a deceitful reigning heart. And so Jesus says, Nathaniel, you seem to be a genuine believer like your forefather Jacob began. And then, The passage in John continues. Nathanael, verse 48, says to Jesus, How do you know me? Jesus answers him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And uh, we read that and we wonder, well, what does that have to do with anything? Well, it turns out that in the ancient world, uh, sitting under the shade of a fig tree was often a place where uh, a believer might go to to worship, to pray, and to meditate upon God's Word. And of course, that raises the question, what was it that Nathanael was meditating upon? Because whatever it was, Jesus knew what it was, and Jesus indicates that to Nathanael. Maybe, and I just say maybe, maybe Nathanael was meditating on Genesis chapter 28. You say, why do you say that? Because of what Jesus says next. Look at verse 49. Nathanael answers him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. So in other words, he's about to tell Nathaniel, you're going to see what your father Jacob saw. Only you're going to see it in a much clearer, more profound way. He says, truly, truly, I say to you. And by the way, 
Now he uses the second person plural. So now he's not just talking to Nathaniel, he's talking to all of his disciples. I'm saying this to you all. You will see heaven opened, the angels of God ascending and descending, not on a stairway, but on the Son of Man. In other words, Jesus is saying, I am the fulfillment of Jacob's dream. Somebody says, how is that the case? Well, in Jesus' incarnation, as in Jacob's dream, you see, God comes down from heaven to reveal Himself to man personally, to hand-deliver His promise of salvation that will restore fellowship between the Creator and the creature. And this is the point that the Gospel writer John makes in the introduction to his Gospel when he begins, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh, and He dwelt among us. Jacob says, God is in this place. John says, God is in this person. Jesus, the Messiah. Dear friends, Jesus is God's stairway from heaven. And Jesus teaches us that God now has come to dwell among men. And dear friends, that revelation Jacob received literally transformed him. He became a new man. And that brings us now to the second part of this text. Jacob's response in verses 16 through 22. And we'll be somewhat brief here, but let me just summarize it for you. His response comes in two phases. First of all, his initial response when he wakes up from the dream, and then his subsequent response when he, after falling back to sleep, gets up in the morning. So first of all, consider his initial response in verses 16 and 17, which I want to refer to as shock and awe. I don't know if you've heard that phrase before. Shock and awe is a military expression. It's a military doctrine, you might say, that advocates the use of overwhelming power and force in order to paralyze an opponent and to destroy his will to fight back. Okay, shock and awe was like that atomic bomb falling upon Hiroshima and Nagasaki bringing the Japanese Empire to surrender. Well now, technically Jacob is not God's opponent per se here. Nevertheless, God needs to bring Jacob to a place of trust and submission. And so, in this dream, he invades his consciousness and he appears to Jacob in a way that leaves the patriarch in shock and awe. Look at verses 16 and 17. Jacob awakes from his sleep and he says, Surely the Lord is in this place and I didn't know it. And he was afraid. And he said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God and the gate of heaven. 
And dear friends, that's precisely what a clear revelation of God's glory does for us. It leaves us in shock and in awe. However, what's ironic is the way in which God shocks and awes. It's not usually through a display of brute force and power. Now, He does do that sometimes. You remember at Mount Sinai, He shocked and He awed the nation of Israel with the thunder and the lightning and the earthquakes. But more frequently, God shocks and awes people with His amazing mercy and grace. The Apostle Paul alludes to this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 where he says, speaking of the love of Christ, he says, the love of Christ compels us. It shocks us. It awes us. Because we conclude that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and He died for all, that those who live would no longer live for themselves, but that they would live for Christ who died for them. And was raised. Paul might have said that the love of Christ shocks and awes me. And the same was true for Jacob. It wasn't so much the stairway. It wasn't so much the angels. It wasn't even just the theophany of God by itself. It was the fact that Jacob realized he was a scoundrel. He did not deserve that God condescended to show grace and mercy to him. He didn't deserve the least of God's mercy, and yet God did condescend and show grace to Jacob, and that actually amazed him. Dear brothers, that's what God's grace does for us. It amazes us, and it motivates our devotion to God. As the psalmist puts it, there is forgiveness with God in order that He might what? that he might be feared. Or in the words of the hymn writer, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the King of glory died, my richest gain I count but loss, and I pour contempt on all my pride. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. That's what it means to be shocked and awed by the grace of God. That, that was Jacob's initial response. But consider now his subsequent response in verses 18 through 22. What I would refer to as Jacob's commemoration and his consecration. You know, sometimes, and you're probably familiar with this, somebody may initially respond to the gospel with lots of excitement, right? Uh, they're joyful and they're enthusiastic and they talk about God. But then, over time, subsequently, they begin to fizzle out. All right? Well, that was not the case with Jacob. Jacob's enthusiasm was sustained. In verses 18 through 19, we read, Early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head. He set it up for a pillar. He poured oil upon the top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel, which means house of God. Now, why did he set up that pillar? 
Well, he probably did so because the pillar, when he took that stone and he rolled it over and set it up, it resembled the stairway. And that would have reminded him of that dream. But, most importantly, that stone was a memorial to God's grace. Should Jacob ever waver in his faith and feel uncertain about the future, he could look back at that stone and be reminded of God's gracious promise. And by the way, Jesus did a similar thing for you and I, because when you and I participate in the Lord's Supper, we are reminded of the blood of the new covenant that was shed for us. And so he sets up this stone, he commemorates God's grace, and then secondly, he consecrates himself to God's lordship. Look at verse 19. It says he makes a vow, and he says, this is verse 20, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go, I, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my Father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God, and this stone which I've set up for a pillar shall be God's house, and of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Now, follow me carefully. Some people think that Jacob's conditional language, that if you do this, then I'll do this, means maybe that Jacob is doubting. That he's saying, well, I'm not sure. Let's see, God, if you keep your word. Other people say, maybe Jacob is trying to make a bargain with God. He's bartering. He's saying, well, you know what? I'll serve you if you do this, that, and the other for me. But I think those are wrong ways to read this statement. We should read it rather as a since-then statement. Jacob believes God's promise. And so Jacob is saying, in essence, since God will be with me, since God will bless me, therefore Yahweh shall be my God and I shall serve Him. Now that doesn't mean that Jacob's faith at this point in his life, is mature. It doesn't mean that Jacob won't fall into seasons of doubt in the future. But at this moment, Jacob acts in genuine faith. As one commentator puts it, at Bethel, Jacob began to become Israel. And the point I want to leave you with this morning, brothers and sisters, is this. God compels us to love Him and serve Him by amazing us with His condescending grace and mercy. You see, as Christians, we don't believe in God, we don't love God, we don't serve God, we don't engage in good works in order to earn God's favor. Rather, we commit ourselves to God, we serve God as a grateful response to the undeserved kindness and favor that God lavishes on us through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is precisely how Paul sought to motivate believers in Rome. Where in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, he says this, 
I appeal to you, brothers, by the awe-inspiring mercies of God. Now, that's my translation. But that's precisely what God's mercies and grace are. It's, they're awe-inspiring. They're undeserved. And Paul says, in light of these mercies, in light of God's grace, you should present your body a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Brothers and sisters, I hope that you can now see, as you read Genesis chapter 28, you can see the gospel of God's saving grace at Bethel. You can see how the Lord of heaven and earth condescended in order to hand deliver in person His promise to Jacob, which serves as a type and shadow of that day when God Himself in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ would descend from the mountain, as it were, in order to hand deliver His redemption, His new covenant promise to His people. And I want to leave you with the challenge this morning that if you have not yet, as Jacob did, respond to this promise with saving faith, with a commitment to trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, to put your faith in His atonement for a right relationship with God, to commit your life to serve Him, to love Him, to obey Him, then I want to entreat you this morning that you will, before this day is over, put your faith in Jesus Christ. That, dear friends, is the gospel according to Bethel. And that gospel finds its ultimate fulfillment in the one and only mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. May we put our faith and give our love and devotion to Him. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, Your Word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our way. Like Jacob, we do not deserve Your mercies. Like Jacob, we are deceitful by nature as sons of Adam. But we do pray that You would do for us what You did for Jacob, that You would condescend, reveal Yourself to us in Your grace and mercy, transform our hearts, shock and awe us such that we place our trust in Jesus and commit our lives to Him. And we do pray that You would continue to open our eyes that we might see wonderful things out of Your Word. And we commit these prayers to You in Jesus' name. Amen.